All right, well, I trust you're in John with me, and like I said, Pastor Greg is not here this week and uh, should be back starting next week, but I'm really grateful to be able to share from this text with you. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we do that, and then uh, we'll jump right in. God, we're so grateful for this privilege, this opportunity we have to hear your word. I pray that you would help us to be careful listeners, that as we listen, that you would give us um, not just ears that listen, but hearts that respond to your word. What we long for more than anything else is to, to declare you as the good and great one. And I pray that we, as we see this, your, your care for this man and his son, as we see your drawing of us into faith, that we would respond to that today. And so glorify you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's always hard when you have an opportunity to preach and just kind of one-off opportunities, what you focus on. And so usually what happens is, I take a text that God has really been using in my own heart, and I share that with you, because that seems appropriate, and uh, I trust this will be a, a real encouragement to you today. You know, there are times where your faith in people grows, right? You start to see actions from others, and slowly over time, your faith in them grows. Maybe you're one of the, in one of those unequal marriages where the husband tried for a long time to get the wife before they were married or engaged or anything else just to pay attention to him. And it took a lot of convincing for her to finally sit down and say, okay, I'll go on a date with you. And then after that, it took a lot of convincing for the second one and the third one. And finally, there was a request, will you marry me? And that was a process of time where slowly there was some trust put into this relationship. But at first, it started off very slow. That happens all the time, doesn't it? Not just in relationships. It happens at work, right? You, you get a new boss, and suddenly the question is, am I going to have to work my way into this person's good graces? Will they trust me immediately? That happened not too long ago for me and the side job that I work. I, I got a new boss, and I thought, oh, no, I don't know if this person's going to like me or not. Is it going to keep working out, doing just a little bit a week? And they were happy with it, and over time we've grown, and now my relationship with her is stronger than my last boss. This happens, though, doesn't it? In relationships and, and work, it, it happens where we have to grow in our trust and our trust in people. What we're going to see today is that this is exactly how it works with the Lord, that God doesn't expect us to go from no trust to ultimate trust in a moment. And in fact, he, he doesn't just observe this process, he's involved in it. He draws us along in faith. I don't know where you're at in your journey. Maybe for you, you say, you know what, I'm at the very beginning. I'm maybe even suspicious of God, but I'm still here. I'm listening. Or maybe you're much further down the line where you say, you know what, I trust God implicitly, but life has been very difficult. And it's hard for me to really rest on the word of God when all of these things in my family life are up in the air, when I'm waiting on a diagnosis about my husband. These are the kinds of things that they, they pull on our heart, don't they? And they ask us, do I still believe? Do I believe the words of God towards me? What you'll see in this text here is that Jesus doesn't beat this man over the head. Instead, what he does is he draws him in in a way that brings him closer to Jesus. It doesn't just answer his problem. It actually connects him to Jesus. And that's what Jesus wants for you. He doesn't want to just sprinkle magic dust on your life and make your problems go away. He wants to draw you to himself. We worship a living Savior after all. This is not about following a certain moral code or about agreeing to a certain number of principles. God wants a relationship with you. Wherever you're at on that spectrum, I trust that today you'll listen carefully to the way that Jesus deals with this man tenderly but firmly. He deals with this man confidently to draw him in, and yet he does so compassionately towards the man. Now, in order for us to understand what's going on, I'm going to fall into one of my well-worn traps, which is giving you a lot of context, because I think it's important here in this text. 
John's whole goal that he set out at the beginning, at the end of the book that he's in the middle of right now is to convince us that Jesus really is the true Messiah. At the end of the gospel, he says that very thing. These are written, the ones I've included, the signs I've included, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is what he set out to do, and now this is the second of these signs in the book of John. Where this falls is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. We know Jesus as the great teacher, as the Messiah, as God himself. These people were just learning who Jesus was. What we find is in both chapter 2 and then in chapter 4 here, we find this was one of his first signs he did in Galilee. And then now, like Kyle just read a moment ago, this is the second sign he does in this area. He just started to gain popularity in large part because he's just visited Jerusalem. In fact, if we were to look in chapter 4, in chapter 3, in chapter 2, you'll see he's gone down to Jerusalem and made his way back up. Well, what happened during that time? Well, as he was in Jerusalem, and even though the Gospels are usually more thematic, they're not necessarily chronological, pretty much all people who try to harmonize the Gospels agree that this is kind of a section at the beginning of his ministry that should be grouped together, John 1, 1 through, John 1 through 4. He went down and cleansed the temple. Here he goes at one of the big feasts of the year, walks into the temple, makes a whip, and drives the money changers out. This is Jesus' work in John chapter 2, a very public declaration of his authority. People saw that, and they responded not just to that, but to the signs he was doing of healing people all over the area. Now, if you don't know this, some three times a year, all the Jewish men from all over the land would gather together in Jerusalem for a festival, a multi-day festival, a week-long festival. During one of these times is when Jesus does these signs. So as he returns, he's coming with a crowd of people following all around him. People were anticipating him because he had done all these signs and they'd started to believe. He then is sought out, this tells you his popularity, by Nicodemus, one of the chief uh, Pharisees of his day. Here, a, a major teacher in Israel thinks Jesus' work in Jerusalem is so significant that he chases him down at night and asks him questions. Jesus is gaining in his popularity. And then, to top that, John the Baptist says, this is the worthy one. Now, to us, John the Baptist is a lesser person. Of course. But in John's day, he was, if I can use a reference that I think will connect with some of you, he was like the Billy Graham of his day. I mean, everyone knew who John the Baptist was. He was the guy. And John the Baptist says, I'm not the guy. He must increase. I must decrease. In the end of John chapter 3. He then returns through Samaria, likely to avoid the crowds that were going back home with him. He goes through Samaria and draws fresh attention. We're told in chapter 4, verse 39, that many Samaritans believed in him. People even of that day that were distanced from the Jewish people recognized him as the Messiah. We come then to just right before our text. Look with me at John chapter 4, verse 43. For after two days of being in Samaria, he departed and returned to Galilee. Now, the way the geography works, you've got Jerusalem down here. You've got Samaria in between and Galilee up top. So he's coming back north, and now he arrives back in Galilee. And what he finds is people are waiting for him says, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. In other words, we kind of get a hint at what John's about to show us. People are not going to have a warm reception to Jesus. And yet, he seems contradictory. Look at the very next phrase. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, John, which is it? Is he not going to receive honor, or are they going to welcome him? Well, there is a difference, and John will start to draw this out, between welcoming Jesus and honoring Jesus. These are people who are ready to see more signs and miracles, and that's, in fact, exactly what John points out, verse 46. They welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they, too, had gone to the feast, as had all good Jewish people. 
They go to the feast. They return back home. Jesus goes another route, likely through Samaria for that reason. And then they're waiting for him when he returns home. Jesus then comes to this area in Galilee where he's from. Cana was just a few miles from where Jesus grew up in Nazareth and just a few miles, about 16 and a half miles from his home base in Capernaum, which we'll see in just a moment. When he arrives there, these people are waiting, but they didn't believe in him. We find that Jesus, this concept of believing or resting in Jesus is going to be very important to this text. When he arrives, as Kyle read a moment ago, he arrives to a large crowd of people who are gathered around him. Because what do they want to see? They want to see signs. But there's somebody else who comes, and this man, this man comes and, and views Jesus as his last, his only hope. The Capernaum official is the one who arrives in verse 46. So again, he came to Cana in Galilee. This is where he'd done his first sign in John chapter 2, where he'd made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Now, this man, this official, we don't know much about him. There are other stories about people in Capernaum. This is where Peter was from, for instance. But we don't know much about this man, but just judging by the way that John describes him, we can discern a few things that are likely the case. He was likely a Jew. We're not told that he was Roman, and there are actually two other people in the Gospels that are high-ranking people from Capernaum that we're told are Romans, or Jewish, or, or, or Gentile people. Here, we're told that he was likely um, a Jew, and that's because Capernaum was a Jewish settlement. It's a Jewish town, and generally speaking, these people who worked for the king were likely uh, Jewish, according to most scholars. This was Jesus' ministry base, as we will see in the Gospel of Luke, for instance. This man, though, was likely employed by King uh, Herod, and I use king very loosely. He was a tetrarch. He was a region ruler over just four little, a uh, fourth of the kingdom uh, that his father, Herod the Great, had, had ruled over. This is Herod Antipas. He's the most prominent Herod in the Gospels. There are actually a few different Herods. And I say he is in the service of the king because as John describes him here, he says there was an official, and he actually uses the word like a king server here, likely saying this is a man who served King Antipas, Herod Antipas. He was over this whole region where Jesus grew up. This is the same Antipas, the same Herod, who would one day behead John the Baptist. This is the same Herod who would one day sit over Jesus in trial. This is the same Herod that Jesus called a fox. The same Herod, the self-same Herod through, we find throughout the Gospels. Jesus then hears this man coming to him. This was a man who was employed by the king, and likely not liked by his Jewish counterparts. This is often what we find like with people like Matthew, a tax collector. People who worked for the Roman government weren't just social outsiders, they were traitors. They were serving the ruling governor. Imagine if we were overtaken by some foreign land, and then you ran across somebody who worked for that government, and they were part of the thumb that pushed down on you. This man was likely not liked by his compadriots. Yet Jesus receives him. This tells us a little bit already about Jesus. As he hears this man coming to him, as he sees this man coming to him, Jesus knows his background. And yet Jesus doesn't shoo him away. Jesus doesn't push him away. Jesus is no respecter of persons. Now, I don't know what your past is, but it's often the case that people first step towards Jesus and their first question is, will he, will he accept me? Will he listen to me? Can I come to him? This is one of many occasions where Jesus says, your past is not an obstacle to me. Your present is not a problem. Just respond in faith. Jesus takes tax collectors. He takes this official, and he listens. This is what Jesus wants to do to you this morning. 
wherever you're at, if you've come to him, he, he's ready to speak to you. The question is not, will Jesus receive you? The question is, will you receive him? Will you listen to his words and respond in faith? Or will you listen like a critic and sit over him? This man, in spite of his position as a king server in Capernaum, has come not as a ruler at all, but as a supplicant. He's cried out to Jesus as his only hope, and he's gone to Cana to beg for Jesus' help. Verse 47 tells us that there was an official whose son was ill. We don't know much more yet at this point besides the fact that he's ill. This is just the general word for him being sick. Now, because I find it helpful to have some visuals in mind, I've, I've, I've prepared a few visuals. I hope you're okay with that, all right? I'm going to take over for just a second. But I've got a few pictures just to kind of get a sense of where we're at. It's about 16 and a half miles. Capernaum is down several hundred feet below sea level at the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is up in Cana. This is up in, in the mountains, about 16 and a half miles away. Because I know that you know where we're at, I've gone ahead and drawn you a map. From here to 25th Street, it's about 16 miles, 16 and a half miles. So you can imagine from down there, that's Capernaum, Jesus is up here, which I kind of like that Jesus is up here and not down there, but he's also down there. No, that's, that's a theological point. But here we go. You can see it's about 16 and a half miles, so that's a long way to go, isn't it? Especially if you're on foot. This man had to travel all the way up the hills, up the hills to Jesus. In a moment, he's going to ask Jesus to come down, and that's very literal. Come down to, with me down to, Cana, or to Capernaum. Now, I'm going to show you a picture here from this view looking at those hills, all right, just to kind of give you a, a picture. This is from the middle of the, the lake there, looking up. You can see those hills up inside there. That's where Cana is, up inside those hills. And now I'm going to show you a spot from there looking back down towards the sea, although it's just around the corner, so you can't quite see it. So just so you know where we're looking from, this is up in those hills, now looking down in the Sea of Galilee, just over there to the right. So again, this is a big climb. He's got to go all the way up into the hills to find Jesus. Now, let me go back to the sea. We're going to look up towards Capernaum. If you're looking up towards Capernaum, here's kind of the entrance. Right now, this is modern-day Capernaum, and you can see, welcome to Capernaum National Park. And if you were in Sunday school, you can see there's no little extra dots there. It's just the, the major, um, major characters in Hebrew. That's what that is. This is a Capernaum synagogue that's still there, and Jesus' synagogue is this lower level right here. Um, this is where a lot of activity takes place in the Gospels because, again, this was Jesus' hometown. He was from Capernaum, um, not where he was born, but where his ministry was centered. He centered it in Capernaum. This is Jesus' synagogue where he would have uh, taught from, where he would have interacted with people. Peter's house is likely just outside of this. I didn't show it here, but the Catholic Church thinks they've identified it, and they built this monstrosity over the top of it. Um, and you can look down through the floor, the glass floor, and see Peter's house. But this area is what we're talking about. This man's from this region. He likely worshipped in this building, and now he's gone up into the hills to see Jesus. All right, so back to our, back to our lesson at this point. He goes to Cana to beg Jesus' help. And I'll let you take back over, Benjamin. Now, Jesus, he asks him, would you come down? And he means downhill to Capernaum, right? He's coming down from this higher location. Look with him. He says, when this man heard Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. And now we get this extra layer for he was at the point of death. Now, when he hears that he returned, tells us the man didn't go to Jerusalem, right? Or he went and got back before Jesus did. Maybe his son was too sick. Maybe he wasn't a devout Jew. We're not sure. But either way, he was waiting for Jesus to return. And now he hears he's come back, and he races up into the hills. We find here, like I said, that his son is not just ill. He's about to die. And so John kind of layers in some more information about this man. This man is desperate. 
Jesus, as it were, is his last hope. Jesus, though, responds in a kind of a curious way. And at first, it looks as if he's stiff-arming the man. But I want you to see that what he's actually going to do is draw the man in, not just to heal his problem. Jesus wants to draw him in personally. And this is the same way Jesus deals with us. So often, we want Jesus just to kind of wave his magical wand, be done with our problems, and then we can move on with our life. But Jesus doesn't want that. He wants you. And so what he does to this man is the same thing he does to us. He draws him in to a relationship. Verse 48, we find that Jesus discourages faithless following, people who just want to see magic shows, as it were. Verse 48, Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, first you say, this man's begging for the life of his son. Why would Jesus say this to him? Some of you might have this in your translation. I've got a little number next to the word you there. Maybe you've got the same thing. If I go down to the footnotes, it says you in Greek here is plural. In other words, it's not just you to the man, it's you all or y'all, all right? He's talking to everyone, right? He has this crowd around him. He's just had people begging to see more signs and wonders, we figure out in verse 46. They want to see more magic, and Jesus turns to everyone, this man included, and says, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Now, these are the same people who, not too many years hence, would see signs and wonders. They would see a risen Lord. And they, willed not, or they still would not believe. Jesus here, though, uses this phrase to point out that raw interest in signs is spiritually dangerous. And this is a theme throughout the book of John, that people who just want Jesus to serve them but have no interest in a relationship with Jesus are in a dangerous position. And this is still people's default position today, isn't it? People's default position today is, I want stuff from Jesus, but I don't know that I want Jesus. John has already pointed out multiple times that this is a dangerous thing. I've got just a few references here, like John 2, 23 through 25, where Jesus says that at the Passover feast where he'd gone, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew it was in man. Jesus said, they're following me because of the signs, but they don't entrust themselves to me and I will not entrust myself to them. And this is the same word that's used here, this word for entrusting yourself to somebody. Or like John 6, 26, when Jesus says to the people who followed him out to get bread from him in the wilderness, he says, you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you want more food. You're just wanting stuff from me, Jesus says. You don't want me. This is still people's default position today. John 9 tells us that Pharisees had seen this blind man and they never believed that Jesus had done a miracle. And then they did believe when they asked his parents and they confirmed, yes, Jesus did heal this man. But they still didn't entrust themselves to Jesus. The same thing happens in John 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. People believe that he did it, but they don't believe in him. This kind of raw interest in signs is a spiritually, spiritually dangerous place to be. Now, Jesus uses this phrase. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, that seems fairly plain and straightforward in English. The word itself, believe, is a word that kind of anticipates um, something to complete it. It's actually the word you might translate it more like believe in or entrust yourself to, and you're kind of waiting for what's hanging. What Jesus is implying here is you're not believing in me. You're not entrusting yourself to me. And this is going to be used three times in this text, where this man believes, first of all, in the words of Jesus, which we'll see in a moment, and then he believes in Jesus. Here, Jesus is saying, you might believe that I can do these signs, but you don't believe in, and the implication is me. 
You're not entrusting yourself to me. So I ask you, do you have a believing relationship with Jesus? Or is yours more like the crowds who you want benefits from them, but at a distance? You want someone to do your bidding, but you're not interested in any kind of close connection with Jesus. What you'll see is Jesus is going to do the same thing to you as he's going to do to this man. He's not going to quickly heal your problem. What he's going to do is draw you to him. The question is, what will you do with that drawing? How do you know if you have this kind of relationship with Jesus that just seeks a benefit and doesn't want a relationship? It sounds like this. When life gets difficult and life gets hard, your mind goes like this. But I go to church, God. I read my Bible. I try to be a good person. How could you? You can see what you've done in that moment is you've turned it into a bartering relationship where I've done these good things and now I expect this good stuff from God. It's, it's kind of this thing where you can put God in your debt. Instead, Jesus is wondering, will you believe him? Will you entrust yourself to him no matter the consequences? Not just for the benefits, you could say. When I was growing up, I had a friend, I'll call him James. James was the most talented guy, I think, to this day I still love him up. James could pick up an instrument and in like an hour be better than anyone else I knew at it. He just was like that. It wasn't too long ago that he made it on a national, well, international cooking show. I didn't even know the guy cooked. I heard about it and started following him, watching him online, and thought, this is, this is crazy. Of course he does this. James was an expert marksman. James was a talented actor. James was skilled at everything he did. Still is to this day, to my knowledge. The one thing I could count on with him is that he was fervent in everything he did. I remember one time I went over to his house, and that afternoon he said, hey, let's go build a tree fort. So I thought, okay. We climbed 30 feet up into this tree carrying wood on our backs, and he's building this thing midair. It was kind of a disaster, but I won't go into that now. Just everything he did was 100%. When it came to God, however, James was like this, up and down, up and down, and up and down. And as his peer, I was a witness to it. We would go to some youth conference, and James was crying out to God on the floor, please bless us, I'm so wrong for what I've done, I want to be right with you, I want to go tell everyone about you, and the next week, he wouldn't be at church, and he was gone for a month. And I'd catch up with him, where have you been? Oh, I don't know, I just kind of got busy. Another thing would roll around, he was right back at it, and what, what I started to see in James is something that's it's common to all of us. It was this kind of attitude towards Jesus. When I needed something, I would run to Jesus. But as soon as life was calm and easy, I was gone. This was amplified in James, and to this day, I don't know that he knows Christ savingly at all. Because it was this kind of a relationship where he would ring the heavenly butler bell when he needed something. And when life was good, he was nowhere to be found. Is that your relationship with God? If so, Jesus isn't here to chide you. He's here to invite you to something deeper. Could it be that the emptiness you found in God is because you're approaching Christ like this? God, I want stuff from you, but I don't want you. Jesus doesn't take people like that. Jesus instead wants a relationship. This is an invitation to love, not a rejection of you. You should imagine for a moment if I went home to my wife and I said, hey, I've I bought you some flowers. I know you wanted to hang out this afternoon and spend time together, but I bought you flowers. So here you go. I'm going to go down to my office. I'll see you at dinner. 
how do you think that was going to work out? No, it doesn't, because what she wants isn't just stuff from me. She wants me. This is what Jesus wants. He wants a relationship. And could it be that all you've done is say, hey, I went to church, Jesus. I gave you time reading my Bible, Jesus. Okay, are we good? And when I need something, I'll ask for something back. Gods don't make deals like that. They don't. They are not in your debt, and they cannot be. Jesus instead wants a relationship. He wants to draw out faith. That's where I'd like to go to next, that Jesus is this man's living hope. He draws out, first of all, faith from desperation. Verse 49 tells us a little bit more about this situation. We first learned that he was ill, then we learned that he was near death. Now we'll learn a little bit more about the child. Verse 49, Jesus has said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official then responds to Jesus directly, to him. And he says, sir, the word is master, come down before my, and he uses a different word here. He uses the word for little child, before my little child dies. This is his desperate cry to him, and it's likely that this is a repeated phrase. Please come down. Come with me to Cana before my little one dies. Have you ever been desperate for God like that? Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it is a situation very much like this where you're desperate for God's physical intervention. God isn't pushing you away in those moments. He's drawing you in. That feeling of utter dependence on God is God's inviting hand to you. Now, what would it be like for life if you were utterly dependent on God? What would that do for you? Much less whether or not God answers in the way that you're asking. Imagine you all day being able to speak with God. You're pleading out to Him. You're listening to Him carefully. When you read the Bible, it's not just words. You're looking for answers. You need God. You're anticipating every act of God's kindness towards you as you look in life. Life becomes a relationship with God as you, you're desperate on His hand. You see that that's actually what God wants. Those moments of desperation are not God's harshness towards you. They're His invitation to you. Jesus responds with simplicity to this man. and It's a brilliant move because what He's just said is that the whole crowd, they want to see signs and wonders. What would happen if Jesus goes down to Capernaum? Who would come along with him? The crowds, no doubt. As he arrives at this little boy's house, you can imagine the crowds pressing in around the windows as Jesus heals them and they get exactly what they want, another miracle, but no closer towards faith. This man also wouldn't be drawn into a relationship with Jesus in the same way because he doesn't have to entrust himself to Jesus. Jesus gets to listen to him and just do what he says. But instead of what Jesus does is he declares something that requires the man to do the opposite of what he's just said the crowds are wanting to do. What do the crowds want to do? They want to see a sign, but they don't want to entrust themselves to Jesus. Jesus says, I want you to entrust myself, yourself to me, and then I will give you the sign. This is exactly what he does. He says, go, your son will live. The word itself here is literally, he lives right now. He is living. Go, your son, right now, he lives. This is what Jesus says to the man, but now the man has a choice. Will he, like the crowd, say, I want the sign, come with me? Or will he say, I entrust myself to you. You've said it. That's enough for me. Jesus persists with his demand for true faith. That is that you don't have to see miracles before believing. But he goes beyond the request because he doesn't even go with the man. The man just says, come with me. And Jesus says, I'll do you one better. I'm going to heal him from here. I'm 17 miles away nearly. I'll heal him from here. But you've got to believe my words to you. Jesus isn't asking the man, though, here to make the first move. 
Right? Jesus has already shown himself trustworthy to heal and to save. He's asking the man to respond to him in faith. And this is what he asks of you too. He asks you to respond to what he's shown you now. And maybe you know only this much of the Bible. Maybe that you heard only this sermon, but what Jesus is asking you to do is to respond to it in faith. And this is how Jesus interacts all throughout the Gospels. He'll give people some amount of truth. They respond with rejection. Jesus pulls away. He gives them some amount of truth. They respond with acceptance, belief. Jesus steps towards them. Today, Jesus is offering you truth. What he wants in us is belief in that. He'll take it a step at a time in that way. But we are never the initiators of faith. What we find is this man does exactly what Jesus wants him to do, what Jesus is inviting him to do, what Jesus is inviting you to do. He believes the word without seeing signs and wonders. Jesus just said, you all won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. The man says, I believe. And he uses that same exact word. Look at verse 50. The man entrusted himself. Not to Jesus, though. Notice what it says. He entrusted himself. He believed the word that Jesus spoke. So there is this distance now where this man is growing in his faith. He's yet to accept Jesus and trust himself to Jesus, but he is believing the word that was spoken to him. And I think John points that out intentionally here. This man entrusted himself to the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. You'll notice that similarity of words. Jesus said, you won't believe? He believed the same exact words. But this time, like I mentioned, he believed in the words of Jesus. Because he believes in the words of Jesus, he steps out in faith. And he returns home. This man now makes the long journey downhill. This likely happens at about 1 p.m., and we'll figure that out later. Jesus then watches this man depart, knowing what will await him. The man, we find, goes down in verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and he said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. That's about 1 p.m., assuming that you're starting at sunrise, which is likely what John does here. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself, and here's that same word, believed, and all his household. Now, this was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Jesus now confirms the faith, and he grows his faith. The servants come to him, and they confirm what Jesus said. They use the exact same word. They don't say, as our translation says here, I think it doesn't quite draw it out right, they say to him, he began to get better. Um, that's what John records here. The word is, they said to him, he lives. Same word. Jesus said he lives. The men say, he lives. He asks him when this happened. This son now lives. He says, what hour? And you can see here that the man has entrusted himself to the word of Jesus, but now there's a second step. Was it Jesus? Right? Was it just circumstance? And isn't this just the skeptic's heart in all of us? We cry out to God in desperation. Maybe you've done such very thing where you are maybe physically or financially in a spot where you say, God, if you're real, and God responds. And what is our first heart gut? Well, maybe it wasn't really him. Maybe it just happened. It shows us our human tendency to, even at the last moment, be suspicious of God. But God answers that. Where he says, yesterday at the seventh hour, his fever left him. This word, he lives. He lives. The seventh hour. The same time Jesus said this to him. And then the father knew. That was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son, again, same word, lives. What we find is this question 
is a question still of doubt. And you know that Jesus will take it in these kinds of stages from you. Today, you might be at this first stage. Will I believe in the words I've heard today? Will I believe in what he said here? Take that and respond in faith. What Jesus wants to do is to pull you in deeper and deeper in faith and trust in what he said. And he wants to show you this exact thing, that he is the Messiah who can save you, not just from physical pain, which is all this man was looking for, but look how much better Jesus has answered it. Jesus simply healed the man, healed the man's son and let him go. This man would be distant, in a sense, from Jesus. And yet what he's done is draw him towards him, not just as the healer, but as his Messiah, as the one who can deliver him from his deeper problem, not just the death of his son, but the death of his soul. This word then, this man now believes. Look at verse 53. He himself, same word, entrusted himself. And again, there's no object there, but the, the, the impression here is in Jesus. The same thing Jesus said the crowds wouldn't do. This man entrusted himself to Jesus. It's interesting how the sign interacts with this belief, isn't it? Jesus said they had to see the word, see the sign to believe him. This man didn't see it. He believed the word, but seeing the sign helped confirm the faith in Jesus. Isn't it true? And often these things go hand in hand just like that. He himself believed in all of his household, the same exact word. I'd like to draw out just three applications as we close today. First is that genuine faith places maximum value on the words of God. So often, it's easy for us to, to prioritize experiences in our Christian walk. To pinpoint God against some kind of circumstance. If, God, you do this, then I will. But true, genuine faith takes the words of God accepts them. This is done by the Spirit of God, like Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2. They are spiritually accepted in this way. And that actually is the first step today for all of us. No matter where you are on that journey of trust in God, of growing in your trust in God, it's when you hear the Word of God today, will you accept it or will you reject it? And in this way, God draws us in. He doesn't ask us to go from nothing to a blind leap. He wants instead a relationship. Could it be that today you've put value on some experience or some circumstance that if God shows himself to be true here, then I will. That is not the way you come to a God. God says instead, believe my word and trust it. Turn around, go back down to Capernaum. Take action on what I've told you. Secondly, signs point to the truth himself. So an unhealthy obsession with experiences misses the point entirely. You can imagine, like I did one day, driving to the dam, and you get out, and there's somebody standing there at the car looking up at the sign. And I asked them, I said, hey, are you lost? Can I help you? And they said, just amazing. I'm up here in the valley. I've never been up here. They were from Ogden and considered this the wild, wild west. I thought, well, that's pretty typical, I find, when people have come up here for the first time. I said, well, well you're not quite there yet. You've got to keep going a little bit. <laughs> but staring at that sign misses the point. The sign points to someone. In the same way, there's, there can be an unhealthy obsession with these kinds of experiences with Christ. Where by putting the value on his word himself, what Jesus is doing is trying to draw us into him, not just the benefits from him. The signs point to Jesus, the truth himself. So don't be unhealthily obsessed with experiences. And finally, faith moves in stages, so respond to each with faith. 
Maybe that this morning you've come and you said, I'm, I'm skeptical of God and I know that. Today, God isn't asking you to take all the steps. He's asking you to respond to what you've heard in faith. God, I'm going to take you at your word and I'm going to listen. I'm going to respond as if that's true. And maybe today that you're much further along in your journey. You say, I've had years worth of trusting God and finding him to be true and trusting him and finding him to be true, but I've, I've never come up against something this hard. Today, what God wants you to do is respond in faith. And God will take you and lead you, as it were, by the hand into faith. Faith into more faith. This is faith that grows. What we see here is the heart of God towards people. The heart of God towards people who are seeking him. The reality is that men seek pleasures. God seeks people. Today, God's seeking you. Your response is to say, I entrust myself to you. I'll entrust myself to your words. Today, I believe. I'll believe that, Lord. God will then lead you faith after faith after faith, just like he does with this man. There's actually a story of another man, another official at Capernaum. He is a Gentile in Luke chapter 7. This man tells Jesus, you're not even worthy to come under my roof. It's likely that the reason he says that is because this man has become not just a believer in Jesus theoretically, but he's told everyone about this. And this man knows what Jesus can do. He says, you won't, you can't, you, I don't even deserve to have you in my home. This man here, this official here, was a believer in Jesus. He entrusted himself to Jesus. The question is, what will you do with Jesus today? Let's pray and ask for God's help to obey this text. And I'll have Jill come lead us in our closing song. We see in ourselves, Lord, this, we see in this man ourselves so much. A man who it seems knows he needs God. He knows he needs Christ, but is still, even at the final moments, skeptical in his heart towards Christ. And yet you do not chide him for it, but you invite him to take a step of faith, to turn around, to go back down to Capernaum. You know that I can't know our hearts here. But no doubt we are all over the spectrum of our relationship with you. Some have been here, no doubt, for weeks or even months, perhaps years, and have heard your truth. While they observed it and critiqued it and maybe even appreciated it, they have yet to entrust themselves to it. I pray that today they would take that step. They would entrust themselves to your words and believe you. There's some here who have long since believed in you. They've entrusted themselves to you savingly. And yet today, their, their experience of that trust is very shaky. Life is difficult, and so many of us have had very, very hard years. It's so easy in those moments to falter, to put our object of faith somewhere else, in our own ability, in our control, in our health, in our finances. But what you're asking today is for us to entrust ourselves to you. You are the great seeker. This morning, you've sought us out by way of this man who is desperate for you. I pray if there are any here today who are in that same boat, who they are desperate for you, and they're not sure of the right step, that you would help them to believe the word they've heard today, that you are this kind of God who wants them to grow into faith, and to believe the words that they've heard today, and that you would reward that by drawing them close to you. What a grace it is that you send us these challenges 
but draw us to you and make us like children waiting at your hand. And so help us to not tire of that. Help us to not weary of it, but help us to embrace it and live lives that are full of dependence on you, that our lives become lives of prayer and of listening to you, of telling others about you, where you become our life and where dying is only gain. For then we will see the one, we will see the one that our faith has long awaited to see, and faith will become sight. So help us, wherever we find ourselves in this faith journey, that we would respond to truth with belief, with entrusting ourselves to you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ.